Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of the Doc NYC Festival. On this episode, we pay tribute to Jonathan Demi, who died last week after a reoccurrence of the esophageal cancer that he battled two years ago. He had been a guest on this show twice. The first time was last spring for episode six. He talked about the documentary portrait films that interspersed his fiction starting in the 1980s. Making documentaries at that stage of the game for me also functioned as like a great shower, a great dive in a wonderful lake. It was very cleansing. Um, Because when we make feature films, let's face it, and it's exciting and it's storytelling, but we're steeped in artifice. We're steeped in made-up stuff. Mm. Um, And um, to be able to, which I love doing Mm. and I love seeing, um, but to be able to now step aside from a script and, again, to have a subject and a theme that, that just really, really is very, very strong for you, but to not know how the script ends, it's very exciting. Last September... Tiff hosted the world premiere of his final film, Justin Timberlake plus the Tennessee Kids. At the festival, in front of a live audience, we taped a conversation about his music documentaries for episode 23. Jonathan talked about the inspiration to make his first music documentary, Stop Making Sense, after he saw the Talking Heads in concert. And as I watched that particular show, um, I was like, wow, this is really like a movie, just waiting to be filmed. Look at this lighting. Look at these characters David does. Look at this great band. And I also thought there was a sense in in that particular show of some kind of like an implied narrative, Mm. that there was some kind of journey David Byrne was personifying as he went from song to song. In the days after Jonathan's death, I couldn't get enough of listening to him. Over the past 10 years, I'd interviewed him multiple times at TIFF, Doc NYC, and the New York screening series Stranger Than Fiction. I came across a conversation that wasn't previously released, but was memorable to me. Last fall, I hosted him at New York's IFC Center for a mini retrospective of his documentaries. For the second night, we showed Swimming to Cambodia, his 1987 collaboration with the monologuist Spalding Gray. The film is deceptively simple. Spalding Gray sits at a desk and tells a stream-of-consciousness story about his experiences performing a small role in the killing fields. He weaves together personal details about his own neuroses and his relationship with his girlfriend, Renee, but also discusses bigger political topics, such as America's illegal bombing of Cambodia that is the historical backdrop for the killing fields. The narrative thread holding it all together is his search for the perfect moment. I hadn't had a perfect moment yet. And it's very important for me to have perfect moments in exotic countries like that. You know, I always like to have to have them because uh, it gives you a good sense of closure. You know, kind of let you know when it's time to go home. And you never know when you're, you're going to have a perfect moment. I mean, they're best had alone. And you never know when you're going to have one. Spalding Gray had originally performed Swimming to Cambodia as a work for the stage. On Pure Nonfiction 6, Jonathan described how he got involved. Then I got a phone call from Renee Shafransky, 
who was going to make a, a uh, film, a documentary of Spalding's performance of Swindy Cambodia. Would I like to direct it? And I thought, okay, my dinner with Andre came out fairly recently. Mm. That's a film that got a lot of currency out of the fact there was two people at a table talking to each other. It's never been done before. So I was like, what if you did a film of one guy at a table <laughs> talking? So I was intrigued. I went. And of course, seeing the piece blew my mind. If you've never seen Swimming to Cambodia, I'd urge you to track down a DVD. Sadly, it's still unreleased on iTunes or other digital platforms. Jonathan made a riveting translation from stage to screen with the help of cinematographer John Bailey, editor Carol Littleton, and composer Laurie Anderson. I clearly remember it making a big impression on me, seeing it for the first time in 1987. It influenced a whole generation to see what could be accomplished by one storyteller connecting the personal to the political. Swimming to Cambodia laid the path for solo performers from Eric Bogosian to Eve Ensler. And its first-person style has thrived on radio shows such as This American Life and The Moth. Spalding Gray went on to make other films, including Monster in a Box and Gray's Anatomy. He was injured in a car accident in 2001. He had often spoken openly about suicidal thoughts, and he is presumed to have taken his own life in January 2004 by jumping off the Staten Island Ferry. His body was found two months later. Last October, Jonathan sat and watched the film again with producer Rene Shafransky. Afterwards, they joined me on stage, and Rene had this to say. I just want to thank you, Jonathan. I mean, I wanted that to be there for a reason so many years ago, and you did that so well, and you went on that ride, getting it to happen, and I really want to thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you, Renee. Um, I remember the, the phone call because we were friends and um, I remember this idea and um, thinking like, gosh, she'll never get this off the ground. <laughs> it's a guy at a table talking. Yeah. But in case she can, because I've seen Renee do things, then wow, what an opportunity. So I thank you. I sit here tonight and I watch this. And I feel like in a way I've never really seen it before. It's been such a long time. I, I was sometimes like, Wow, nice. Or how did they do that? You know, and, <laughs> and, and more than anything, just marveling at Spalding. Yeah. You have to finally wind up, I think, with the word genius with this guy. Good Lord Almighty. Does anyone do this today? Um, what I, you know, you can imagine what I was thinking about, but, <laughs> but the, the thing that struck me most is what a life force. What a life force at that point in time channeled. And how sad. Mm. How sad. But it's another reason I'm really glad that this exists. The, the reason that you got that phone call was that Spalding had been performing it for years and it was a two-part theatrical piece performed part one on one night part two on another each were two hours long and he was tired and he wanted to move on and 
I was sad then about the idea that, wow, this will go away. And I thought it was such a fascinating melding of the personal and political. And I didn't want it to be gone. And reading it on pages, on paper, was not the same. So Jonathan said yes and stuck with it for all the time it took to get the money. And it was Jonathan's suggestion that this can't be a four-hour film. Sorry. <laughs> you guys have to figure out how to get it shorter so it can be filmed. And if I were you, I'd focus on that perfect moment. So Spalding and I were going on the last tour together, and we spent we used the tour to take it from four hours to just under two, I think. And then you and Carol Littleton edited it down even further to really its essence. Mm. I mean, you got what I can't barely remember what's not there. I asked Renee how Spalding created his blend of personal and political storytelling. He developed something in front of an audience over time and had asked me at that point to direct, which really meant to be an editor, and to say, this isn't working, maybe if you move this here and put that there. So what seems like a stream of consciousness was actually a very labored uh, project over time, months and months and months, shifting material around, and Spalding would have the notebook, which you saw at the beginning. Wasn't it great to see Soho back then, all graffiti I and know. funky? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, too. I know. <laughs> yeah. Did you know then that you were, like, creating that time capsule with that outside stuff? Honestly, maybe a little bit, because I've, I've always thought, as, as filmmakers, you know, we are inevitably kind of, um, you know, anthropologists in, in the present. So what we're going to show, in case someone sees this in 300 years from now, that's how they lived. Yes. That's why you have to be careful about what you put in your movies, yes. especially fiction. Um, but like imagine people of the world watching Dallas and thinking that's how Americans yeah. live. <laughs> they were right. Yeah. Uh, that was Soho. Yeah. Yeah. So, Jonathan, what were the conditions that enabled you to get the movie made? So you, you say Renee came to you, uh, made this proposal, and you thought it would be a tough thing to to do. How how did it happen? Well, I a um, couple of things. One thing is, I I remember. I think at a certain point, I think we flew to Chicago, Florida, Florida, and talked to, to someone who, uh, and yeah, we were also banking on the idea, I think that I was, that, that well, you know, my dinner with Andre had been a very substantial hit. Two people at a table talking to each other. Why not go one stranger and have one person at a table talking? So I thought, yes. But also the other thing is that, that Renee, um, in suggesting we do this movie, Renee was also... By the way, um, Carol Littleton, the great American editor, wants to cut it. John Bailey, the great American cinematographer, wants to light it. Um, I think even Skip Livesey, who is now an emerging sound designer, 
wants to do the sound. So I was like, wow, this is just like walking into a... So I don't know. My memory of the process is that it was like so easy. The phone call from Renee, <laughs> a certain amount of time. There's this great crew waiting to do it. Uh, and then we went to Florida and came back and shot it. No. <laughs> I was watching a documentary on Amelia Earhart recently, and it opened with a quote of hers to paraphrase. It was something like, the first action is the hardest, and the rest is just tenacity. And it took years. We went to Florida. You, you won't remember this. You may have blocked it out. We were meeting Somebody had a connection with a guy who owned laundromats who wanted to put money into movies, literally launder. Okay. (laughs) And... And that didn't turn out well. He He said yes, and then I paid all these lawyers to draw up the papers, and he pulled out, and there were a number of scenarios like that. I was cleaning houses for a living at the time. Literally, that's what I was doing by day and at night working on how to get Swimming to Cambodia made. And then someone introduced me to Peter Newman and Lewis Allen, the great Peter Newman and Lewis Allen producers, uh, did some Broadway work, then did work with Robert Altman, come back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, and a number of other movies. Lewis produced Fahrenheit 451. And I was so jaded by that point that when I walked into their offices and I finished the meeting and they said they were interested, I said, if you are really interested, put $10,000 in my bank account by Monday and give me an office. Wow. And they did. Yes. Yes. And that's what happened. <laughs> but we, the Florida thing just... Uh, <laughs> but that was so long ago. God. Anyway. And Renee, when the movie came out, what did that mean for attention to Spalding Gray? That is an interesting question. You know the last line that he speaks in the film? And I finally knew what it was that had killed Mm -hmm. Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. I think the attention from that film was the beginning of something that didn't have a good trajectory. I speak from hindsight now. I'm also a psychotherapist, so I Mm -hmm. now look at things a little differently. But there was... um, a kind of pumping up that was hard for him to contain. That's just my perspective, but... And can you elaborate? Do you mean like in a creative way or in a kind of underground celebrity way? uh, What what was the... It was the the kind of thing where there was this... How can I say this correctly, there was this rupture between the artist and then Spalding getting invited on late night television shows to David Letterman and all the other people who were around then and 
Mm-hmm. You know, it was like this this thing started, the publicity machine that starts. And in a way, it was so antithetical to the very porous human being who was, you saw, walking through the helicopters in the footage from the killing fields, but inside all of that experience was being processed with a sense of irony and just much more complexity, which isn't allowed for in the regular media machine of that time anyway. And so I think this schism developed, you know, Spalding doing the nanny in Hollywood, and but Spalding the artist, and he couldn't quite put the two together, Humpty Dumpty style. So that, just, Again, this is just my perspective. I mean, I should put in perspective for the audience who don't doesn't know this career as well. After Sumina Cambodia, there were two other monologue films, one called Monster in the Box that's directed by Nick Broomfield, uh, one called Grey's Anatomy that was directed by Steven Soderbergh, and then after Spalding Grey's death in 2004, Steven Soderbergh made another film called And Everything is Going Fine, uh, drawn from archival material of, uh, of Spalding Grey. Jonathan, were, were, did you ever have discussions with him afterwards about doing one of those other movies, or or did that not happen? Um, we we didn't have discussions about doing any other spoken word stuff, but um, I definitely wanted to work with Spalding as an actor. And for a while, we we um, when the picture came out, I th- it was it was well received, and we got invited to film festivals, and that was really fun. It was fun hanging out and kind of basking in in this um, uh, the fact that we had made this this kind of challenging film and it had worked for people. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and I never, you know, had a chance to uh, you know have a script that had a good part for Spalding. Um, Spalding is is in uh, David Byrne's directorial debut, True Stories, um, which I was a friend of, and that was exciting to see Spalding on screen again. And uh, it's so interesting, because, Renee, your perspective on, on all that stuff, no one has that uh, acute vision. So I wasn't thinking in those terms. Um, I was just enjoying Spalding. And then, then years later, um, he had his catastrophic car accident in uh, Ireland, and came back, um, you know, in pain, uh, physically and emotionally and psychologically, and um, you know, yeah. So I, I, you know, it's like I, I always love Spalding, and you know, our, we are just our paths stopped crossing so much after that. Renee was not only a producer of Swimming to Cambodia; she's also a character in the story. My girlfriend Renee, <clears throat> her upstairs neighbor, is a member of the art mafia. She first got involved with it when she was working for the man that defaced the Guernica and became famous for it and now has galleries all over Soho. Now she has her own gallery. She plays her quadraphonic torture box full blast above us. Every night, it's Bob Dylan's Sarah. Something must have happened to her way back then, and she really, I know it could be worse, but every night, it's unbelievable, it's like you're in the room with it, I mean, if it was just 1.30 in the morning, fine, it'd be like feeding time, you could get through it, but it's diabolical, it's 1.36 in the morning, it's 2.10 in the morning, it's 3.15 in the morning, it's 4.11 in the morning, what do you do? You call the police, they come, she turns it down, they leave, she turns it up, they come, she turns it down, they leave, she turns it up. Spalding stays on the topic of the neighbor's loud music for another minute or so. 
Listen, listen, listen. When I was back in Boston in 1964 with my people, right? White bread, homogeneous, brick wall, Boston. Back in 1964 when they had the, what would you call it then? It was a hi-fi. Not to call, if a hi-fi was on too loud above me, I would simply make a phone call. I would just call up staff, pick up the phone, go, hi. Hi, Puffy. Hi. <laughs> hi, Spuddy Gray down here. Hi, guys. Yeah, I, just a few notches. I wouldn't ask you to do it, but I got an early dance class in the morning. Right. Yep, thanks a lot, Puff. Mm -hmm. Merry Christmas to you, too, guys. Bye. <laughs> right down. We had the common language. You know, Renee, Renee's father was in the Jewish mafia. She knows the language. She grew up in the streets of New York. She calls up and goes, Bet you wanna die, right, bitch, cunt? I'll beat your fucking face in with a baseball bat. Bitch, cunt, die, die, die. <laughs> goes louder. Renee's convinced the woman's a masochist and is getting off on the language. Renee, I wonder what it was like for you to be a character in those stories at the time, and also what it's like now, some, you know, nearly thirty years later, to be a character in those stories. <sighs> um, That's an easy one. <laughs> I think when I was much younger, then, uh, I was flattered. But also, please understand, not everything is true. <laughs> um, there is some hyperbole. Um, you didn't make that phone call to your neighbor? I did. I would, like to, I would like to think that I didn't use the word cunt. And uh, my roommate at the time is the witness to it. I remember saying, Betty, bet you want to die, bitch. Beat your fucking head in with a baseball bat, bitch. But, sorry. <laughs> but I'd like to, so that, there were additions that I didn't really appreciate. Um, and I forgot the second part. <laughs> well, I was wondering, you know, what it was like at the time and then what it's like today to, to see those stories memorialized. Well, I, I, I hesitate to bring this up. But I will. I just saw the documentary now piece. Did you see it? I should explain the documentary now is an IFC TV series written by the comedians Bill Hader, Fred Armisen, and Seth Meyers. Each episode, they parody a different documentary. On season two, they have an episode called Parker Gale Location is Everything, in which Bill Hader mimics Spalding Gray. The piece also has a girlfriend character named Ramona. And I should tell you, it, it, it would have been my loft at first, okay? And when I met Ramona, she sort of, she sort of colonized the place, you know, like a, like a feminine Neil Armstrong. She came in and said, I think a flower pot would look nice by the window, thunk. Then suddenly her blouses and cold cream and sucrit tins and mohair throws were all over the apartment until one day she said, Parker, if you insist I sleep here every night, and if I have to keep all my stuff here, then I should stop paying rent on my apartment and just move in, right? And that is how I asked Ramona to live with me. No, 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 no. That is not what happened. Okay, hi, I'm Ramona, and that is not what happened. He begged me to move in with him. He begged me. <laughs> 
For starters, I never liked sleeping there. It's a seven-story walk-up. Um, it smelled like yogurt. He would eat plain yogurt in the bed and then chuck the containers over the dresser and yell, bye-bye, yogurt. Having looked at that 20-minute piece... Um, well, and there's a character called Ramona. There's a character, which <laughs> is interesting. Um, but it Happens to be the name of Jonathan's daughter. Right. There's a character who also sits at a desk with a microphone, Ramona, commenting on Bill Hader Spaulding's monologue about what is true and what isn't. But what I gleaned from watching that, because there's always a little bit of truth in that kind of parody, was how neurotic I was. I used to be really much more neurotic than I am now. And they picked up on that through years probably of watching his monologues and hearing my character's voice come through, even though distorted. I will still admit I was pretty neurotic. I want to defend you, but how can I against you? <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, we all were. Exactly. <laughs> In a question from the audience, Renee was asked about Spalding Gray's rapid-fire talking style. He wasn't doing that all day long. It was, it was like there was, Spalding was quite, for the most part, quiet on daylight hours until he started to have a little alcohol and then the channel opened. But he would test these stories in pieces in social situations all the time. And Betty again Betty Gordon, filmmaker extraordinaire, and my roommate in the loft that Spalding refers to at that point in time, over our kitchen table, he would be telling her stories, testing little pieces, not saying I'm testing them, but you would see he was reading a reaction, and then he'd take out the notebook, and he'd put it there, and then he'd put another piece next to it, and in the notebook are only little one-liners about what story piece is next. Mm. But he wasn't working that way in his head all the time. And that said, eight shows a week doing that can get the chemicals going in a very imbalanced way. And he had some of that. He definitely had, he was diagnosed with some bipolar, and I spent six months with him when he was on lithium. Mm. And that's as long as he would take it for. And it was like being with a, a completely different person. Mm. And so I could understand why he did not want to continue with that. Mm. Just spinning off of, of, uh, of what Renee just said, when, of course, that was a very particular situation, you and Betty, kitchen table, notebook, but one of the fun things about being friends with, and with uh, Spalding and hanging out with him was there'd be times when he's coming forth with great stuff in a conversation, and you'd have the thing in your head, Joanna, I've talked about that, it's like, is he auditioning stuff or just telling a great story? Who gives a shit? It's great. <laughs> That was Jonathan Demme and Renee Shafransky, recorded in October 2016 at the Stranger Than Fiction screening series. For more on Jonathan, listen to Pure Nonfiction Episodes 6 and 23. 
Last week, I wrote an article for TIFF's web magazine, The Review. It's titled, Documentary Filmmaking Became Jonathan Demme's Oxygen. You can find it at tiff.net. Thanks to Pamela French, who recorded this conversation and saved it on her hard drive for when I needed it most. And thanks to our regular team, series producer, Michael Scotty Jr., sound mixer, Kyle Murphy, web designer, Cross Strategy, marketing coordinator, Sarah Modo, social media master, Jordan Smith, and executive producer, Rafael Nehausen. We've now been doing this for a year together as we work towards the benchmark of our 50th episode. I'm incredibly grateful to them all. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. If you're in New York, come see our screening series, Stranger Than Fiction, on Tuesday nights at the IFC Center. The spring season runs through June 6th. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.